How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 352 of X-Lapsed, where uh, your boy's still an aching unit here. Um, still uh, quarantining myself, still sleeping on a very, very uncomfortable mattress. I kind of jumped between the uh, you know the mattress, uh, the bed in the guest room, and the couch a few times last night, uh, and boy, we have some very uncomfortable furniture. <laughs> um, it's it, You know, you never have to sleep on these things, so when you do, it's... Uh, well, you discover a lot of things, and it's been very, very unpleasant. I haven't had a good night's sleep since Sunday, and it's, what is it, Thursday right now? It's a long, it's a long time ago. So I'm kind of tired, kind of cranky. Uh, I hope that the book we're discussing today isn't uh, something that will make me further cranky. No, no, it won't. It's a, it's actually not a half-bad issue here. Um, let's get right into it. Uh, we're looking at New Mutants, Volume 4, Number 25. It had a June 2022 cover date, and... Uh, Boy, it feels like forever since we've talked about an issue of New Mutants. It's It probably hasn't been forever, because clearly we have, but, uh, boy, it feels like a long, long time ago. Anyway, our story is called Best Laid Plans, dot, 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 and this is part one of the uh, Labors of Magic, I believe is what they're calling the uh, the arc. Written by Vida or Vida Ayala, with art by Rod Reese and Jander, Jander Sama. I haven't seen Jander Sama's name on... On something in quite a long time. Colors by Reese and uh, Ruth Redmond for the Dersema um, segment. Uh, letters, VCs, Travis Lanham, designs Muller and Bowen. Edits, Okoye, Brunstead, White, Sabalski, cover price $5. This is, of course, a anniversary issue, I guess, 25 uh, And this one went on sale May 18th of 2022. Now we open with a mostly blank quote page, and uh, by mostly blank, I mean mostly blank. Uh, it's Heracles speaking of his labors here. It's one line. And, of course, as, as mentioned, this arc is about the labors of magic, so why not, I guess? Um, now, we open the story proper with Sim concocting some sort of a potion at the direction of a shadowy horned figure who is almost definitely Belasco. Though, the fact that he's in shadow and is only referred to as the master could mean anything. I mean, it could be anybody. Uh, Sim is encouraged to drink the concoction... And he does so, but not without reservation. Now, this causes Sim to manifest a large mace, which Belasco, or the Master, yoinks out of his chest before handing it back to him. Of course, there are parallels here to how magic would manifest the Soul Sword, right? Now, Sim, S-apostrophe-Y-M, in case you're unaware, is a reference to Dave Sim, the creator of Cerebus. Or, as I would have called him as a kid, Cerebus. Um... Worth noting, back in the early 80s, some of the comics press reported that there was going to be an X-Men Cerebus crossover, with even some artwork published in these magazines, which looked really, really cool. 
unfortunately, for whatever reason, I'm sure people do know the reason, but it never happened. Uh, now, Sim would also, or Sim, the, the man, Dave Sim, would also use his Roach character in Cerebus to lampoon or satirize some existing comic book characters, some of the popular ones. Uh, most notably to us would be Wolver Roach, which is the Roach character dressed in like a Wolverine getup. Anyway, from here, double page spread of roll call and cred, our characters include Magic, Danny Moonstar, Sim, Madeline Pryor, and Wolfsbane. We get back to comics, and we get a page that looks like it's torn out of a children's fairy tale book. Now, it's the story of the Little Goblin, who appears to be a stand-in for Ilyana when she was a child lost in limbo. Now, as we're going to discover later, this is from an actual book in Belasco's library that Ilyana discovered and read while she was being held as his captive. Our scene shifts to Krakoa, and we're at The Reach. Now, I don't know if we've ever seen The Reach before. But it's a uh, towering mesa. You know, it's just like a tall cliff with, like, a flat top. Um, and here we're watching uh, Magic, uh, who is currently blindfolded, preparing for a little practice sesh with Danny and Rain. Now, unsurprisingly, Magic wipes the floor with them because, of course, Magic does that. During the sparring session, uh, they debate whether or not it was wise for Magic to have done a certain thing. And just like that, that certain thing appears. And uh, we're talking about Madeline Pryor. We learn that Magic is trying to have her installed, Madeline that is, as the Queen of Limbo, or Queen of Hell, as it's said here. We'll talk more about that as we work our way through. First, let's hop back to the storybook, where the little goblin meets up with three companions. Now, they're obviously references to Rain, Madeline, and Danny. They're called the Wolf, the Queen of Echoes, and the Moon Whisperer, so it's not exactly hard to... Uh, to deduce who they're talking about here. I mean, the wolf is clearly Wolfsbane. The Queen of Echoes might be, you know, the Goblin Queen who's also a clone, an echo of another person. And Moon Whisperer, Moonstar, you know, they, there you go. They, and they, they all kind of resemble the <laughs> appropriate characters. So, these three, the Wolf, the Queen, and the Moon Whisperer, they see the truth in the Little Goblin, whatever that's supposed to mean, and they choose to stand by her side for this quest. And so, we go back to reality, where the four ladies hop a stepping disc into limbo. Now, we're in Magic's personal quarters-slash-bedroom, where we see an old bearded fellow rummaging through her belongings. He manages to grab a hairbrush that has a smattering of, assumedly, Ilyana's long blonde hairs tangled up in it, and he runs off. Now, as he flees the room, he insists that he's helping, and that Ilyana will eventually see that he's helping. From here, our foursome heads next door, or down the hall, or they head into another room, and they're into Belasco's Stacks, which is a vast, vast library consisting of the totality of arcane lore. And everybody seems quite impressed at this site. Madeline's kind of, eh, you know, oh, it's okay. But uh, everybody else is like, wow, this is pretty cool. And as a, you know, a, a book guy myself, I would probably be in that camp. I, I love seeing book spines. I, I, I'm just a mark for that kind of stuff. I hate how the internet has, uh, you know, named it shelf porn, because that just seems, I don't know, very internet-y. But uh, I, I do appreciate a nice set of bookshelves. Anyway, Ilyana triggers a secret compartment in these stacks in order to open one of the uh, bookshelves up. And this reveals some, uh, some other shelves full of uh, mystical hoodoo. Now, during this bit, Maddie expresses a little bit of surprise that Ilyana would come to her for this sort of help. Now, the gimmick here, at least as far as I can understand it, is that if Madeline takes over as the Queen of Limbo, 
it would free Ilyana from the burden. I don't understand exactly how that works, but uh, hey, we'll, we'll roll with it, right? We'll roll with it. It's limbo. What are you going to do? Anyway, Maddie references Inferno at this point, and of course she's talking about the original one. You know, the, the real one, not the one that they just took the name of because, hey guys, remember Inferno? Uh, we get a handy-dandy editor's note here to let us know that they are in fact talking about the 1989 crossover because A, we're all idiots, and B, I'm sure the editors themselves were confused. Anyway, Ilyana produces a magic inkwell, does a bloodletting, dips a pen into it. It's, it's a whole big ritualistic thing. The idea here is that she and Madeline need to sign some sort of a binding mystical contract here. And I guess Ilyana hopes and or assumes that signing this deal will keep the former and potentially future Goblin Queen in line. Maddie looks over the agreement and is handed the pen. We shift scenes back into the storybook where our foursome approaches what I'm assuming is the soul sword stuck in a stone, we learn of others who had fallen in their quests, including a windwalker, a shadow, and a titan of steel. So, you know, Storm, Kitty, and Colossus, which is a reference back to um, an older story we'll talk about in just a little bit. First, back to the library, where Magic and Maddie are stood in a sort of ritual circle of... Uh, ritualness? I don't know. It's it's very, very um, occulty looking. Uh, they're doing this in order to, I assume, seal the deal. Now, Danny, uh, she still has her reservations here, and she's putting up a bit of a fight about the wiseness of this decision, to which Maddie gets very, very peeved. She reminds everybody here that she was resurrected. And, of course, you know, the Krakoan dream here, the Krakoan mission statement is a... Uh, you know, once you're once you're back, you've got a clean slate. You know, once you've been accepted into Krakoa, once you've taken that step into Krakoa, you're like a brand new person. Everything you've done before can't be held against you. She also references the monster who made her and explains that this monster still holds a seat of power on the Quiet Council and Krakoa just run, helps run the place. So how is it fair that she can't at least get an opportunity at living her own life? Of course, she's talking about Mr. Sinister. And hey, you know... I could have done without the purpleness of this monologue, but uh, her point is well taken here. Uh, she mentions like, "Where's my Krakoan dream?" and it, it's it's very uh, <laughs> it's very cute. Um, anyway, from here, Sim kicks in the door, and before we know it, the entire place is teeming, swarming with demons, or limbo monsters, or whatever the hell we're gonna wind up calling them. We'll just say demons for now. From here, we hop back into the storybook, where our four companions are trying to swim through some murky, bubbly waters, or soul goop, or... I don't know, maybe it's tar. I don't know, it's like purple and bubbly and thick-looking. It's viscous. Uh, anyway, back to the fight. And it's a... well, it's a fight. <laughs> um, Danny wonders out loud if Limbo Resurrections are as weird and wonky as Otherworld ones, to which I'd say, hey, here's an idea. Maybe don't die. Right? I mean... I hate that this is like an option now. You see, this is just another instance of the... At least to me. Maybe I'm thinking too hard. Maybe I'm a little too sensitive to this. But it feels like more of that devaluing of life and death. I feel like pre-Hoxpox, our characters wouldn't like instantly go to death. It's like, oh no, we're in a fight. What happens if we die? It's That was never an option before. Now that it is an option, it's like... <laughs> I don't know, I... This is, a, this is one part of this era that I cannot wait to, to kind of be shoved back in the box, it, you know, assuming it ever will be. 
Anyway, then, just like clockwork, Danny is attacked from behind, and uh, before the bearded demon can land a killing blow, Madeline Pryor is there to punch him clean through his chest, saving Danny's life. And uh, you'd assume that maybe that earns her a few points in Moonstar's book. Anyway, more fighting ensues, and Magic and Sim wind up going toe-to-toe. This results in the Soul Sword being shattered by the pectoral mace, whatever the hell the thing that they yanked out of Sim's chest is. And uh, the the sword shatters, you know, and magic is dropped. The ladies realize that uh, this is not a fight they're going to win, so they gotta flee ASAP as possible. Danny helps Ilyana to her feet, and she stepping discs them away. And, uh, well, there's a little problem here. They don't quite make it back home to Krakoa. They don't even make it back to Earth. Instead, they wind up in some sort of snowy clearing still in limbo. From here, we hop back to the storybook. The little goblin looks into a shattered mirror, sees a bunch of eyes, a baby in a basket, and the amalgamation of Cloud Strife and a goblin uh, holding, you know, the giant buster sword. It's very, very strange. Uh, From here, we go to a mostly blank quote page, and this is another mostly blank quote page. I mean, you could go blind by looking at this page. It's so white. Anyway, this is a quote from Macbeth, and... um, It's like six words. It's totally worth the 25 cents this page costs us when we bought the comic. Anyway, speaking of comics, let's get back to comics. And we are in flashback land, complete with Jan Dursema and Ruth Redman's somewhat uh, Sunday funnies-looking art. It's it's a a bit... I was going to say it's a bit different than Rod Reese's. It's a lot different than Rod Reese's. It kind of clashes, but I think that's kind of the point. Maybe we'll talk about that later. Anyway, here in Flashback Land, we see Ileana as a child hanging out in Blasco's library, and she's reading the story of the Little Goblin. Now, we might assume that this scene would be fit in between issues 2 and 3 of the Magic miniseries from uh, 83, 84, right? The Magic, Ileana, and Storm series, the miniseries. Uh, Issue 3 was where Ileana would get her growth spurt, you know, and be a teenager instead of, you know, just a little kid. Anyway... Here in the scene, Ilyana is approached by Kat. Now, Kat is the limbo version of Kitty Pride, who would help raise Ilyana. She tells Ilyana that the master awaits. It's worth noting that our gal manages to hide away the little goblin storybook before Kat can see it. From here, we get a page that kind of sums up Uncanny X-Men number 160, August 1982 cover date. Now, this one holds quite a special place in my heart because it was the first Claremont issue of Uncanny that I bought in a back issue bin. Um, it was... Probably 1993, 1994, so all uh, Uncanny X-Men back issues were, like, ridiculously priced. I mean, you're looking at, like, double digits for any issue, for most issues anyway. This one had a rolled spine, and it was in a damaged uh, bin for two bucks. So it's like, ooh, score. And I still have, that, that's still my copy of Uncanny 160. I've never replaced it. I love this copy of it. Uh, the story, yeah, I could, you know, take or leave, but... That issue itself is very, very special to me. Anyway, in this issue, issue 160, um, there was uh, some X-Men who were corrupted by Limbo. This is also the issue where Ilyana was abducted into into Limbo. Anyway, story continues, and Ilyana heads out to meet with the Master. And again, we're assuming that that's Belasco. I'm also assuming that it's going to be a bait-and-switch, but we'll find out uh, probably in the next few issues. Uh, We close out with the revelation that the Little Goblin actually exists, and we see him enter Belasco's library, and we find out that he's the one writing the storybook that Ilyana is reading. And that is where we leave it. Next episode, 
Oh boy. Um, hmm. uh, giant size X Men Thunderbird, which I'm not gonna lie to you guys, I've already read it, and uh, I'm not looking forward to talking about it. But uh, the mission statement of this program does not let us skip things. So uh, next episode, giant size T Bird. But we'll worry about that later. Uh, for now, <laughs> let's sum up our thoughts on New Mutants number twenty-five. I should probably preface by saying I'm not a huge fan of Limbo. Um, it's weird, you know. I, I feel like whatever setting our comics are in, I always have to start by saying I'm not a fan of this setting. You know, I'm not a huge fan of Limbo. I do like it better than Otherworld. I probably like it more than Shi'ar Space. I definitely like it more than The Savage Land. I think it's like I'm coming to a point where my tastes are so focused and, like, uh, tunnel-visioned that... Maybe I just don't like comics as much as I thought I did. I really don't know. Um, now, even though I've really never felt much of a connection or cared too much for Limbo, I can still, like, get it, you know? And this story, I think, uh, really told what it was trying to do quite well. If we're looking at, like, the broad strokes. You know, the broad strokes of this story here, where we've got Magic trying to kind of relinquish her uh, attachment, her throne in Limbo, give it to Madeline Pryor, which... Is that a good idea or a bad idea? We, we really don't know. Like, we don't know how Maddie's come back. We know that she's kind of walking the line, right? We've seen her look in the mirror and she sees the Goblin Queen version of herself. There are other books in the Marvel line where Maddie's made some uh, surprise appearances. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about them uh, somewhere down the line. But is this a good idea? The fact that we're asking that question, and I care enough to ask that question, I think that's... That really speaks to the success of the story here, which wasn't something I was expecting coming in. A particularly strong scene, probably the scene of this issue, was the shattering of the soul sword. I mean, that's a pretty big deal. You know, I like I said, I don't really have much of an attachment to Limbo. I don't really put much importance on Limbo because that's one of those places where there are no rules. You know, uh, magic could have, like, the soul cucumber and beat people to death with that. It doesn't—anything can happen in Limbo. But the way it was sold here, I mean, even if we were to take the the dialogue, the word balloons, the narration, every word out of this book, the look on Ilyana's face when she realized what just happened, when when Sim and and she clashed with their weapons and the mace didn't break but the sword shattered, you saw a look on Ilyana's face where the realization set in, and for me that was enough to seal the deal. I really, I really, really appreciated that page here. It was, it was very effective. Um, I mean, even if you're unfamiliar with any and all of Limbo's trappings, even if you were unfamiliar with Magic's story to that point, the face just told the entire thing here. Great, great work by Rod Reese here. Uh, he's an absolute treasure, and this sort of story absolutely invites some of his strongest work. It's so suited with his style. I can't think of another current year creator who would be better suited than Rod Reese here. And uh, speaking about the art here, let's let's continue uh, with the art here, because Rod, he killed it <laughs> in both the real-time scenes as well as those in the storybook. Uh, the storybook scenes were... Uh, it's weird how... You, I mean, you can immediately tell that it's Reese, but there's like this like an older look to it. Not old as in outdated, but old as in like a stylized sort of old st style to it. 
very, very effective stuff here. Um, not confusing, which, you know, sometimes when you get into these limbo stories, you don't really know what's what. You don't know what's a flashback. You don't know what's a, you know, a foretelling. You don't know what's happening in the present. You don't know where the hell you are. Here, it was very, very effective. But then we hop back into flashback land, and uh, John Dusama is a great artist, um, but it was a, maybe a little too jarring. It looked a little dated. And I mean, of course, we're going into a flashback. Maybe the datedness is intentional. But it just didn't look like it fit at all with the rest of the issue. Um, I don't know if this was, you know, I mean, it was a 25th issue. It was an extra dollar. Maybe there were extra pages in it. I couldn't tell. There probably were, I would assume. But um, maybe this was just a convenient way to sidestep a time crunch. Uh, maybe this was the intentional long... I really can't say. All I can say is that I found it to be a bit jarring, but again, we're in limbo. Maybe maybe that's the point. <laughs> maybe that is the point. But um, what else we got? Um, the dialogue here is, uh, well, it's not bad, but it has some of those um, some of those things that we've come to expect from the last you know year or so of New Mutants comics. Uh, very social media psychologist sort of uh, discussions there. It, I don't know if I've used this comparison before, but um, like if you watched uh, the last season of The Office, um, the characters Jim and Pam were, uh, they were in marriage counseling. They were having some troubles, and they started uh, using, you know, shrink talk to when they spoke to each other. Like they would say something, and like before the person, the other person would respond, they would say, I, I, I appreciate your truth. I, I understand you're speaking your truth. Like, acknowledging this sort of thing, which was being played for, like, awkward laughs on the show. But here in this comic, I have a feeling we're supposed to take it at face value. Like, the just the, the way they talk to one another is very much like they're trying to analyze one another. You know, Danny, Magic, and Rain talking on that butte, or Mesa, the, the Reach, or whatever the hell they call it. It felt like they were all trying to psychoanalyze one another, which you probably don't need a psych degree to know. That's very, very annoying. But all that aside, I did enjoy, you know, the broader strokes of the story, and I'm actually interested in seeing where it goes. Of course, I think I would have preferred a good old-fashioned quiet issue, where maybe we actually get to touch base with our characters rather than running into, like, the next never-ending adventure. I mean, how long were we dealing with the Shadow King? That feels like that story went on for a dozen issues. I'm hoping that this magic story doesn't go quite that long, or even half as long, but eh, fingers crossed. I just feel like it's been a minute since we've last had like a an actual quiet issue where we checked in with our characters and maybe, I don't know, just had them enjoy each other's company. Though, I suppose that could be seen as an invitation for a dozen characters to sit around in a circle psychoanalyzing one another, and uh, well, that's the last thing we'd need. But I think that's about all I've got to say about this issue. Overall, I enjoyed it. And as always, I'd love to hear your thoughts as well. Now, um, before I wrap it up today, just a brief aside and an invitation. Uh, when I discussed uh, Legion of X number one, I put it out there that I really wanted to hear people's thoughts on some of the heavier topics, heavier subjects that we kind of leaned into during that chat as well as just people's thoughts on, you know, the book itself and the entire X-Men line. Well, my good friend and uh, Quest Today's and Moratory Monday's partner, uh, Chris Bailey, took me up on that, and he gave some of his thoughts and mostly expressed a bit of frustration about the direction that the X-Books have been heading in uh, for, for quite some time now, how 
the X-Men just don't feel like the X-Men anymore. And he asked me if I could find out what the real X-Men fans think about this, uh, this direction, uh, where the X-Books have been, where they're going, where they may wind up. And, you know, it made me stop and think, because I didn't realize what a difficult question that was. I mean, where do you go to find a real X-Men fan? <laughs> I really don't know. Um, I feel like uh, there's a huge disconnect at least on, on the internet, because, I mean, that's the only thing I have access to. I don't really know people in real life, especially not comic book fans. I mean, the odds of going outside my house and finding someone who is familiar with the X-Men is, uh, or at least the comic book versions of the X-Men, is... Well, that's a pretty tall order, isn't it? And in search of these answers, I was led down a really, 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 really horrible rabbit hole, wherein I started checking out the uh, reviewer aggregate websites, the comic book review aggregate sites, which, oof, um, if you're ever feeling cynical about comics, don't visit those sites, because they are, uh, they're hazardous to your health. The amount of shilling and look at meing on those sites is enough to make you, uh, throw every device out your window. You'll never want to be on the internet again. The, just the amount of butt-kissing on these <laughs> review aggregate sites. And of course, this isn't limited to comic book reviewers. Of course, there's, you know, the Metacritics for video games. There's the, the cesspool that is Rotten Tomatoes, where uh, you can see at a glance who was bought and paid for, right? Uh, you can see the, uh, the disparity between the professional reviews and the uh, regular old human reviews. There's usually quite a difference there. So didn't have all that much luck there. So I would like to extend this question to anybody listening. What are your honest thoughts on our books right now? X-Men, anything, any comic books. What are your honest opinions? Do you like this direction? Do you hate this direction? Do you have some troubles with this direction? Are you looking forward to this direction being over? Um, I can only speak for myself. Like I say, I'm not beholden to Marvel. I'm not beholden to any creators. I happily pay for everything that I discuss on this show. So I don't have to worry about anybody taking my comp privileges away. Um, personally speaking, there's a lot to like about this era. You know, it doesn't feel like, you know, the X-Men of old, for sure, right? And in a lot of ways, um, these are characters that are familiar at sight. You know, we can look at them and say, like, we can tell that that's Cyclops, and we can tell that that's Rogue. But the way that they're portrayed might not jive with the way they've always been portrayed. It's... A strange evolution, it's a lack of attention to detail, it's a kind of lack of respect for continuity and past characterization, but um, like I said, there is a lot to like. There is a lot about this era that I enjoy. There are a lot of things about this era that challenge me, which I enjoy. You know, it's, it doesn't have to be something I agree with, it doesn't even have to be something that I like. But if it makes me think, if it makes me see things in a different way, if it makes me understand and appreciate different ways of telling a story. Those are good things, in my opinion. I don't have to like everything. Nobody has to like everything, no matter what the internet says, <laughs> especially these review aggregate sites, where if it's if you dare to give anything less than a 10 out of 10, and uh, this is pure genius, you are trolling, <laughs> and you are just being contrarian to, to seek attention, you know? It's quite the web that's been weaved in the comic book reviewer community, isn't it? So yes, I personally feel like there's a lot to like about this era. There are also things that 
that I don't care for. Other people may like it. Other people may, f may consider the things I hate to be the highlights, and that's perfectly cool. But I'm not going to lie, there is a great big part of me that is very much looking forward to the announcement that Krakoa is going away. <laughs> I don't know when or if it'll come, but I really, really miss, you know, the old X-Men. And, I mean, when I say the old X-Men, I mean the old X-Men, because I stopped to think about it when I was researching this question, when I was trying to think about how to respond to this question. And I tried to think about when the last time it was that the X-Men just felt like a, like a superhero team. You know, I came into the comics in the early 90s, 1991, 1992. Those are very different characters. Those are very, very different stories than what we have now, no matter if they're reusing the names of those stories now or not. But I tried to pinpoint exactly when it was that things changed, and I discovered that I'm quite the hypocrite because um, things have been different ever since uh, Grant Morrison came in. And I'm on record as having absolutely adored that run. But it is where that line was kind of drawn. You know, I don't think the X-Men have gone back to straightforward, you know, non-ironic superheroing ever since then. So will the old style of storytelling ever come back? I don't know. Should it come back? Hey, I also don't know that either. Um, I think uh, comics are always evolving, whether we want them to or not. And... Um, that's part of what makes them so special. You know, if you don't like what's going on now, maybe six months down the line, something will happen that you'll like. And credit to Mr. Bailey, he has popped in on this era several times in hopes of finding something to glom onto. It's just to this point, none of these stories have spoken to him. And that's perfectly fine. He treats this era fairly in saying that these stories just aren't for him. He's not saying they're bad stories. He's not saying they're bad creators. He's just saying that these aren't his X-Men. And I tell you, that's a very, very healthy way to look at it. And uh, it's the sort of uh, health and mental clarity that I very much envy. <laughs> but uh, thank you so much for listening and for uh, raising that question here. And of course, if anybody out there listening wants to share your thoughts, please, I encourage you and invite you to do so. I'd love to continue this conversation. And hey, if you want to do such a thing, you can reach me several different ways. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. Instagram at 90sxmen. You can send an old-fashioned email to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com or call into the X-Labs voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. And, of course, I think you can text there as well. So if you want to text, feel free. For blog posts and show notes, you can head over to chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can join us on Facebook. Our group is 90sxmen. Of course, the complete audio archives are waiting for your ears at chrisandreggie.podbean.com, and you can find that anywhere you find your favorite and least favorite podcasts. And I think that's about where we'll leave it for today. I would like to thank you all so much for choosing to spend a half hour of your day with me today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.